live from our studio in Babson Park, Massachusetts, it's the Fred Opie Show, where we unpack history to positively impact the future. I am Fred Opie, your host. Thanks for joining us live or listening to the podcast. This is another in a series of Southern Food and Civil Rights Book Talks. This one took place at the Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta, Georgia. The talk focuses on the sit-in movements in the city that Atlanta University Center students at Morehouse College, Spelman College, and Atlanta University organized. Why did I decide to write and research this book? That would be one question. Secondly, why did you put recipes in a history book? You can actually cook from this book. So it's not a cookbook, but it has recipes in it that I can tell you from experience that you can actually cook from. So what does that add to our knowledge of history? The sit-in movement that happens here in Atlanta in 1960 happens at the AUC, Atlanta University Center. All right, Spelman, Morehouse, Atlanta University, uh, seminaries, it happens right there. But those are students that are watching four students in Greensboro, North Carolina, integrate a lunch counter or attempt to integrate a lunch counter. So we're talking about a movement that happens in Greensboro, North Carolina in February 1960. And then the movement here in Atlanta starts in March of 1960. So these movements, as I've said before, they're building on one another. So you have one student in particular, I'm gonna show you an image of them. And I'm talking to you from the chapter in the book of chapter five, and that's the title of the chapter. So most of us think of the sit-in movements as starting and focusing on Woolworth counters. That's one of the many lunch counters that are integrated. And as I mentioned to you, these are the four students, college students in Greensboro, North Carolina, and North Carolina A&T, who integrate the lunch counter. And these are the students, if you go upstairs, there's an exhibit where it shows four stools that are reenacting these actual and I'm not sure because I've been in, in D.C. where I've seen the same four stools. So I'm sitting there looking upstairs. Is this the four? Is that a copy of the four? I'm not sure which is which. But it's demonstrating that, that actual movement. So this is February 1960. This is a, a gentleman who was a student at Morehouse College. And his name is Lonnie King. No relation at all to Dr. King. He is the one who decides that he wants to reproduce what just happened in, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And he is a, one of these students, he's an older student who was in the Navy for about five years. He came back to the Navy and on the GI Bill went, went to school at Morehouse. I think Lonnie King is also interesting because of his grandfather. Lonnie King originally is from a more rural part of Georgia and his grandfather was an itinerant preacher in this, in this area of Georgia. And what he did is he used the cover of being an itinerant preacher to work as an organizer for the NAACP. The show will be right back. For related content, visit our website at fredopi.com. Check out our podcast archive and review the show on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. The best way to support the podcast is to tell a friend. Share the show on Facebook and Twitter, or send them to our website at fredopi.com. If you like the work that we produce on this show, support the show and get access to extra content and more at patreon.com backslash show. Every week and month, I will be posting additional content for those who want to pay for it at patreon.com 
backslash Fred Opie Show. Let's return to the show now to unpack more history to positively impact the future. What it means is if his grandfather was caught organizing people and registering people for the NAACP, he no doubt would have been killed. So his grandfather was a very bold man, and Lonnie remembered as young as age nine, his grandfather saying that essentially he didn't see much difference in the existence of African Americans in that part of Georgia from the existence of African Americans before the end of the Civil War. He, he thought it was tantamount to slavery and something has to be done, even if, even if it meant that you could be killed. And so Lonnie gains great inspiration from his grandfather. He goes off to the military. He comes back to the military. He enrolls in Morehouse College. He's sitting on a long line to register for classes, and he runs into Julian Bond. Julian Bond, he speaks to him about this movement that happens in Greenboro, Greensboro and says, we should do the same thing here. Julian Bond says, I agree, we should. And they begin to mobilize not only Morehouse students, but students at the other AUC uh, universities. So they decide that they're going to do the sit-in. This is a picture of uh, the Pascal brothers, James and Robert. And they had a restaurant that still exists today. The restaurant started in one part of town. It's, it's moved, but it was located right on the outskirts of Morehouse College and Atlanta University. And these two gentlemen started a business that many of their employees were students at the Atlanta University Center. And so when planning for this movement began to integrate lunch counters throughout the city of Atlanta, Woolworths, Crest, uh, the Rich's department store lunch counter, they decided that one of the ways that we will do this, we'll organize this at Pascal's. And they got support of these owners, these entrepreneurs to do this. Another thing that's interesting about the restaurant that they ran was even though it was in the African-American community, it had a regular trafficking of both white, black, and other type of customers. So it was a, never a Jim Crow restaurant. It was a restaurant where everybody came. And a lot, of, a lot of white police officers ate there too. So they're organizing in this space. And once the movement actually takes off, it becomes a safe haven. So this is a picture of James. Here's many different stages of that restaurant. It started off as a very small place and kind of a more uh, a less known area of the African-American community in Southwest. And then eventually, as you can see, they worked their way up to having a kind of a, a multi-tiered stream of revenue with the restaurant, the hotel, and then they also had a lounge for like jazz and jazz music. So, the students at the AUC decide to go downtown and integrate several of the restaurants. And the first thing they actually do is they don't even get in the door of all these places. So what they do is they pick it in front of them. And again, direct action. Now, this may seem like not that big of a thing now, but it was very dangerous for them to do that. And we'll talk about what happened to some of them shortly when they were doing that. So the students are picketing Crest department stores, Walgreens, which is one of the stores that we still have now, but Walgreens is one of those places where there was a segregated lunch counter. As I mentioned, Woolworths, there were several stores, but Rich's department store is probably the, one of the prime targets because it was such a big business and had such a big presence in downtown Atlanta. 
So here are students from the AUC. We don't know if they're from Spelman. We don't know if they're from Atlanta University. We know they're not from Morehouse because it was an all-male school, but they're picketing down here. Then here's another scene of students who are, if, if you could see here, this is a gentleman who's a member of the fraternity Omega Psi Phi. Okay, so the fraternity's got involved in it. Uh, the Greensboro protest involved student athletes. Lonnie King himself was a student athlete at Morehouse. So one of the things that you, that you notice about some of the people that led the civil rights movement is that many of them had a military background, like Ralph Abernathy, these were veterans of World War II. Megger Evers was a sergeant, decorated uh, military uh, person during World War II. You have Ralph Abernathy who comes back from the war. Again, they have a lot of their, their boldness, their militancy from fighting over in those actual wars. And again, you have members of the fraternities there. Here's the inside of Pascal's, which served as a place where they would not only organize, but when they came back from protesting, from having to deal with uh, counter-protests, violence from police officers, when they would be arrested, the Pascal brothers would put up bail for some of them. When parents were coming to find out that they knew that their children were participating in movements and didn't know if they were safe, they would wait for the children back in the inside of the restaurant. So it became a very important space for this. You see the same thing with uh, Dookie Chase's restaurant in New Orleans, served that same purpose. You see the same thing with a place called the Big Apple Inn in Jackson, Mississippi. It became an organizing spot for the civil rights movement. So this, this is kind of a theme that you'll see not only within the civil rights movement, but in a lot of other movements like the American Revolution, et cetera. That there are spaces, many of them bars, taverns, that serve as important organizing spaces for activists. Now, one of the things that happens during the movement here in Atlanta that starts in March and goes all the way until September 1961 is that Dr. King is here in Atlanta, but he's not directly participating in this movement. He doesn't want to get involved in the movement. He thinks it's too risky and he kind of backs off. The thing is that Lonnie King had been a member of Ebenezer Baptist Church where Dr. King's father was the pastor and then Dr. King took over. So he knew Dr. King in a very intimate way and he was pressuring Dr. King to get involved in the movement. Dr. King did not want to get involved. But what Dr. King did say is he asked uh, Ella Baker, and this is Ella Baker as a very young woman, to get involved. And she graduated from Shaw University in North Carolina, and she goes down to Shaw, and I think it is, if I remember correctly looking at my date, it's in April of 1960 that she goes down and she organizes a movement uh, for uh, an organizational meeting for students in AUC schools around the country. And it's out of that meeting that in February of 1960, SNCC, actually April of 1960, that SNCC is organized and founded, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So again, you can see these things are happening and they're percolating around. And so Ella Baker actually does that. I would argue that it's the Greensboro sit-in, it's the Atlanta University sit-in that ultimately leads to the formation of SNCC. And most people will tell you that they were probably the most radical of the civil rights organizations of their time. So what you see is a number of SNCC groups popping up in different parts of the South. And they would go into communities 
and they would open up storefronts and begin to organize members of those communities with a lot of resistance, a lot of violence against them. But it's one of the things that they did throughout the South. They also had them in places like New York and New York City. So it wasn't just in the South. You would also see SNCC groups that would organize in, in different parts of the Northeast. I don't know if you recognize any of the people in this, uh, in this particular photo, but this is the author, uh, Lorraine Hansberry, right? wrote Raisin in the Sun, and this is the singer Nina Simone. And they were both involved in SNCC. So a lot of folks who went on to do things and noted it in, in literature and in, as entertainers, they were very involved in organizations like SNCC. We know that people like Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, a lot of these people, if you look at the March on Washington, you'll see some of these entertainers involved in the March on Washington. But the early roots of their participation in the Civil Rights Movement goes back to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So again, all this stuff is going on while the students at the AUC are protesting and trying to, in trying to desegregate the restaurants in downtown Atlanta. So here now, finally, Lonnie King pressures Dr. King into participating in this, in this actual event. So here's Dr. King. He's going down to, to, to uh, march and protest and picket in front of Rich's department store. And now the big fish is in town and catches the attention of the cameras. And therefore, the mayor of Atlanta decides we need to do something about this. And he arrests Dr. King. Not only does he arrest Dr. King, but he, Dr. King is sentenced to go to a work farm and work hard labor for months at a time. Okay, So I want you to think about this. This is roughly October 1960. It's a presidential election year. It's John F. Kennedy running against Richard Nixon. This is a very difficult situation in an election that's going to win by a split vote. And the split vote is African-American voters who are increasingly registering the vote and exercising the right to vote. So what happens? Dr. King goes to jail and a member of the AUC movement reaches out to the Kennedys, and it's not John F. Kennedy, but Robert F. Kennedy, who is much more progressive than John F. Kennedy, and he calls the mayor on the phone, and he negotiates the release of Dr. King. And that news quickly spreads throughout the grapevine and the networks of the African-American communities, north and south, east and west, and African-American voters turn out in large numbers to elect John F. Kennedy. All because of this particular event that happens here. So it's a very significant piece of history to talk about this movement, Dr. King's involvement in the movement, his arrest, and then the Kennedy's intervention in this movement. It's all Robert Kennedy. It's a new biography came out probably about six months ago that, that really talks about this in some depth and, and the importance that uh, that made in getting John F. Kennedy actually elected. So here's Dr. King and Lonnie King on the side, both male and female participants. This is members of the police force behind 
Bahan, and, and this particular photo is them being marched into custody and arrested during this particular time. So this is a, you know, a series of events that happens and becomes national news. Uh, the organization that started this movement came up with a declaration and somehow a member of either U.S. Congress or Senate heard about it and read it into the record of the U.S. Senate or the Congress. I'm not sure which one it is. It was then republished for free by the New York Times. So it, it kind of went, uh, as we say, we go viral. As much as you can say something went viral, that's what actually happened. So the movement, it, it got a lot of news around not only the country, but around the world. And next thing we know, it is 1963. It's the March on Washington. Not that long after, JFK is shot, he's killed, he's assassinated, and Bobby Kennedy's running for president. And it's interesting because Bobby is radicalized as he increasingly learns about the condition of African-Americans in the South, particularly in the state of Mississippi and the Mississippi Delta. So, so Martin Luther King is assassinated in April 1968, and shortly thereafter, Robert Kennedy is assassinated as he runs for president because the fear that people have that Robert Kennedy and the record certainly shows was much more progressive and willing to make changes than his brother was. His brother never had the exposure to the conditions of African-Americans in, in the South that Robert did. Robert increasingly understood what was going on. So again, that's just an opportunity to explain to you all the many facets of what happened here in one year in 1960 here in Atlanta. It's a fascinating thing to unpeel the different layers of the participants, the ramification of what happened, the movement of the police, the then response of the organizers, and then what happens with the presidential election. When you put all these things together, one year has a lot of history and a lot of lessons for us to actually to learn. I want to stop there, and I'm sure I've said some things that make you think of questions or comments, so let's, let's open up to discussion and see what questions or comments that you actually have. I wouldn't say I have a, a favorite Southern food restaurant. Uh, I like a lot of food, and I would never even on tape want one restaurant to know that I don't like this as much as the other, so uh, I, I'd say there's a lot. Of, and I lived here from 2000 to 2003. And a lot of things have changed. I'm just amazed of the number of restaurants who have gone out of business and the number of restaurants that have opened. Even barbecue, a friend of mine who works in the field of food uh, writing, he gave me a list and he said this wasn't even his top 10. This is like his second tier list, but it was close to where I was staying here. And he said, you should go check out these places. So he said, most of these places have opened since I left in 2003. And a lot of the older places, they've gone out of business. I wouldn't say I don't know other ones here in Atlanta that pay, play that same role. I mean, even till the election of Maynard Jackson, that place continued to be the meeting place for, I mean, you could probably go in there and run into ambassadors. I mean, power brokers from both sides of the aisle. It became, now, and it's similar in New York, there's a, a place called Sylvia's. And Sylvia's had, I don't know if it's still open, but when I was here, 
they had their second branch of the restaurant open up here. But Sylvia's in New York is the same place. It was a meeting place for activists and politicians. But I don't know of another one that plays that same role here in Atlanta. Did their places not necessarily serve the same role as Pascal's, but a lot of those other businesses supported the movement with donations, you know, to that 1960 movement because a lot goes is involved in waging a civil rights you know protest it's a lot involved including bailing people out of jail including paying for you know we showed the, the picket signs all that stuff has got to be purchased it's got to be provided for so i mean these are all things where you, you're probably going to try to talk as many people as possible who are favorable to what you're doing it's since moved yeah since moved you, you had your hand up before. Yeah. There's an, another book that came out on, on Johnson's administration. The thesis is that Johnson's war on poverty was making tremendous gains. But unfortunately, he allowed the Vietnam War and misdirect funds for the war on poverty. Often we forget as we reinterpret the life of people in history like the Kennedys, Dr. King. When Dr. King died, he had fully committed to denouncing the Vietnam War. And even among his peers within the African-American community, they did not like his decision to oppose the war. And if you were to look at his ratings, you know, what people thought about Dr. King, they were way below 50% when he died. We have forgotten that fact that he increasingly was standing against the Vietnam War and standing for the poor. And he is shot in the process of defending the rights of poor sanitation workers in the state of Tennessee. One of the things that I share with my students is what's the difference between the North and the South? Well, it's de facto Jim Crow and it is Jim Crow. What's de facto Jim Crow? I explained to my students. Where we, where we are in Massachusetts, you can drive on the throughway and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. However, if you drive 55 miles an hour, you will probably get run off the road because everybody is driving. De facto speed limit is 65, 70, depending on what time of the month it is. In the north, there is Jim Crow. I, I, there's, a, there's a book I'm working on right now, and I'm looking at uh, the work of James Baldwin, who's born in Harlem. And Baldwin does not have an interaction with Jim Crow or de facto Jim Crow until he's in Princeton, New Jersey. And that's where he is run into, we don't serve black folks at this restaurant. And he runs into this and runs into it and runs into it. Not in Harlem, it's in Princeton, New Jersey. So these, these, are, these are real issues. I have pictures on my food blog where you have fronts of restaurants in Pennsylvania that says uh, white, whites only at restaurants. So this is, this is custom, it's not law. And the, the problem that you would run into, it's really interesting because there's um, a Zagat book-like rating um, where I think it was called The Negro Motors Guide. And it was, it was created, it was, it was a mimicking of Jewish people in the United States came up with this, this booklet that when Jewish people were traveling 
in the United States in order to find places where they'd be treated with respect, they could get room and board if they were lodging, they had a booklet where it's like, this is the safe places to go. Well, a postal worker in New York saw this from maybe one of his colleagues, and he came up with the same thing. And he called it, I think it was called the Negro Motors Guide. And it was essentially like the Zagat book that some of us who are older remember the Zagat rated books would tell you good restaurant. And you could read this guide and it will tell you places across the United States where you could get something to eat, where you could go to a hotel. It covered, it covered the entire United States as well as the Virgin Islands, Puerto Rico, and Mexico. And so the fact is that you have places throughout what we would call safe places like states like Pennsylvania, Ohio, New York that were in that book. So what is that book telling you? There were problems in those places too. There may not have been laws, but there were problems. The ideal that, there, that segregation and racism is a regional problem in the United States is an absolute farce. History shows that. Yes? What other book have you read? I've seen your name some. My first book, Hog and Hominy, published in 2008. My other book that you may have come across is on Zerona Hurston and Florida food. A lot of parallels is a book called Upsetting the Apple Cart, and it's on black Latino relations in New York. And I look at the coalitions that happened between black and Latinos to get African Americans fighting against the Democratic Party in New York to get African American Puerto Ricans elected to public office, whether it be school board or city council or mayor. So it, it covers this whole history of desegregating New York City, really. So that may be something else. Uh, and uh, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to do uh, some radio, so a lot of times uh, you may have re-heard re something that was on earlier. And, and also, I, I appeared in um, Byron Hurt's documentary, Soul Food Junkie. You, that's been on TV a couple of times, too, so you, you may have seen that. My mother's own experience as an activist growing up, that any time that she was involved in planning, they'd have people over somebody's house and they'd always have a call to bring food. So it just became like a regular part. So I, I remembered that and I started to just do research and it kept popping up, whether it be a student takeover of the City University of New York, there would be somebody organizing food. And then I'd look at strikes. And the fact is no strike can succeed unless you can keep those families of the striking workers fed. So one of the first things you see when there's a strike is other unions coming to the aid with money donations and food donations to keep everybody going and keep their family fed. Because if you can't do that, it's over. The other thing that made a, an important impression on me was a gentleman who wrote a book. And it was a book about, uh, I think it was about habits, if I remember correctly. And he was in Iraq as a reporter, and he was embedded. And there was this one trouble spot in this one town. And they could not stop rebellions to keep, from keep fomenting there. And then they brought in this specialist. This guy was like a, a colonel or something like that. And he brought him, they brought him in. And the colonel came in, and the reporter watched him do his analysis. There was a city square where these movements kept erupting. And so the colonel sat there and he watched. And he watched for a day, he saw one of these protests develop and happen. And then he called a meeting with the city fathers of this place. And he said, 
can you remove the food from the city square? They didn't know why, but they said, yeah, sure, we could. So they got rid of all the food vendors. And so the next time a movement started fomenting, it took hours for those movements to start. And what was happening is the agitators would go out and speak and speak, and people could stay there because there was food. But by just removing the food, after a while, the agitators got hungry and dispersed and went home. So I said, whoa, food can start a movement, a lack of food can end a movement. I think we got something here. The very last chapter in the book is I talk about the Nation of Islam. The Nation of Islam has owned and operated its own farms and has maintained its independence when it comes to feeding its community and providing work for people in this community through its food, whether it be restaurants, grocery stores, and all those kind of things. And so I do a whole chapter on the Nation of Islam and what it has to say about food they protest with their economic plans. And economic plans are very connected to food. So why the recipes? So my first book I mentioned, Hog and Hominy, was published in 2008. And I was out doing book events like I'm doing here. And people kept saying, I really like the book, but where are the recipes? So thereafter, anytime I did a book, I would do the research and find recipes related to the time period and the event and what was described. So it became almost like wine pairing. Here's a story, let's find a recipe to pair with the story. Here's another story, let's find another recipe to pair with the story of the movement. And that's what I've done. And I've cooked myself from these recipes. So it, it's not a recipe from a food blog, it's a recipe from 1960 Georgia. There's a lot to be learned just by unpacking a recipe and who actually put it together. That's a wrap for this show. Thanks for listening. To hear more content like it, go to fredopi.com. If you have questions about advertising and sponsoring this show, contact us at fdopie at gmail.com. That's fdopie at gmail.com.